these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Romans 4.1 says, What then will we say Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul explains the theology of justification. Then in Romans chapter 4, Paul is going to test his theology of justification on Abraham, making Abraham the test case. And Paul's goal in this passage is to teach one of the most counterintuitive and glorious truths in all the Bible. Four simple words, that God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. This is the Mount Everest of the gospel. It is the high point of the glory of God, that the God of the Bible is a God who justifies the ungodly who have faith in Jesus Christ. And I would suggest that all the glory of God and the good of humanity rests on this description of God. Notice that, that it does not say, the idea is not that God justifies the ungodly, or that God justifies the godly. That's what we would expect verse 5 to say, that God is a God who justifies the godly. And if that was true, then we would have to make ourselves godly. And once we became godly, then God would justify us. But that's not what it says. It says God is the God who justifies the ungodly. So at the height of our sin, when we deserve it the least, this is when God gives us his very righteousness. It's not when we clean ourselves up, but it's when we humble ourselves and turn to Christ, trusting in his work on our behalf. This is when God declares us to be as righteous as God himself. And so this is a marvelous truth. And if it is true that God is a God who justifies the ungodly who have faith in Christ, then Jesus Christ is worthy of our entire lives. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our trust, our obedience for all of eternity. It is a marvelous truth. And so what do we learn from Abraham? He's going to test, Paul's going to test the doctrine of justification on Abraham, and he wants us to learn from Abraham's example. So what do we learn from Abraham? Four truths. Number one, Abraham was justified before God. Abraham was justified before God. A simple explanation of uh, justification, or the idea of being justified, is that it means to be made right with God. To be justified means you have a right relationship with God. You have come into a right relationship with God. And everyone believed that Abraham had a right relationship with God, that Abraham was a true worshiper of God. Uh, Paul is writing largely to Jewish people in Romans chapter 4. Uh, he's writing to everyone in one sense, but he's specifically addressing the concerns that Jewish people had. And every Jewish person believed that Abraham was justified. He, Abraham was the first Jew. He's the, the George Washington of Judaism. He is the original gangster or the root of, of Judaism. This is who Abraham is. And so the question in the passage is not whether or not Abraham is justified. The answer is yes, he was justified before God. The question that we need to think about is the question, how was he justified? How was a sinful, idolatrous man like Abraham made right with God. What is the basis of his justification before God? Lesson number two. Abraham was not justified before God by works. Abraham was not justified before God by works. Verse two. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now this statement in verse two is true. This thought experiment is true. If Abraham could have been justified before God by works, then he would have something to boast about. In the same way, if you could be justified by your works before God, you would have something to, just, to, to boast about. I mean, arguably, the greatest thing you could ever do is justify yourself. 
If it is true that our sin has condemned us, has made us, has made us an enemy of God, worthy of hell, if that is true, the non-Christians are underneath the wrath of God, then the greatest thing you could ever do is make yourself right with God. If you could make yourself right with God if, by your own behavior, then you would, you would have something to boast about. And so this thought, in the thought experiment, it's true. If Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about. But Paul is eager to say, but not before God. He is eager to have us bring Abraham into the presence of God, to, to consider whether or not Abraham could boast in the presence of God regarding his righteousness. He wants us to think about Abraham in light of Abraham standing in the presence of a holy God. Now, to help us think through this, I did, a, I did an imaginary interview with Abraham this week. And just to help, Abraham is the center. He is the theme of Romans chapter 4. So I just had a, a hypothetical imaginary interview with Abraham this week. And here's how the interview goes. This is me. Abraham, did you always love and worship God? Abraham, No. For 75 years, I worshiped the moon god. You see that in Joshua 24, verse 2. 75 years? Yep. Okay, Abraham, but after you came to know God, you got your act together, didn't you? So after you came to know and worship God, you got your act together. Abraham, I've had many challenges. I committed adultery with Hagar and had Ishmael. And one time when, I, when we were traveling, I got scared and offered my wife to another man to save my life. I told him Sarah was my sister and that he could have her me. Didn't that happen twice, Abraham? Yeah, it did. And I've never heard the end of it from Sarah because of that. And we could just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going with Abraham's life. He was a man of great faith and great failure. Abraham, Abraham made huge mistakes. And so in verse 2, Paul is reminding us that Abraham has nothing to boast about before God. And therefore, he was not justified by works. Okay, so if Abraham was not justified, if he was not made right with God, by works, then how was he justified? Lesson number three, Abraham was justified before God by faith alone, apart from circumcision and the law. Verse three says, for what does the scripture say? Now here, Paul is gonna go back to Genesis 15, verse six. And I, I love that Paul says, what does the scripture say? Present tense. See, the word of God is still speaking right now. When Paul thought about this 2,000 years ago, what does the scripture say? God's word is still preaching. God's word is still speaking. Paul doesn't say, I'm the apostle Paul, and I say what I want to say. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm the apostle Paul, and I am saying to you what God has always been saying in his word. That God has been speaking all the way back at the beginning, and God continues to speak. And I'm just saying what God has always been saying. And so he goes back to Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him. For righteousness. So how was Abraham made right with God? By believing God. It says that he believed God and he was credited, it was credited to him for righteousness. So this is what it means. Think about ungodly, idolatrous Abraham, worshiping the wrong God for, for 75 years. God makes a promise to, to Abraham. Abraham believes the promise of God. And then what God does is he takes all of his righteousness that God who created everything, the holy God of the universe, he takes all of his righteousness and he puts his righteousness in Abraham's account. So that on the basis of faith, believing the promise of God, Abraham in Genesis 15, 6 
is now as righteous as God himself. Now, has he earned that righteousness? No, it's a gift that God deposited righteousness, his righteousness into Abraham's account. This makes Abraham the perfect example in the Old Testament of justification by faith alone. I mean, he is the clearest example in the Old Testament of justification by faith alone. There are two details in Abraham's story that everyone knew, that Paul's original, original audience knew, that we need to be reminded of to see how Abraham is a perfect example of justification by faith alone. Detail number one is that Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15, 6, and circumcised in Genesis 17, 23, and 24. Now, Jewish people, they would have argued 2,000 years ago that the basis of justification, so how was a person made right with God? They would, have, they would have argued that in order for a human being, a sinful human being, to come into a right relationship with God, they had to be circumcised. That this is the basis of their, ju- of their justification before God. Some people argue today that in order to be made right with God, you have to be baptized. That baptism is the basis of justification before God. But Paul is arguing here that Abraham was justified by faith apart from circumcision. He was justified by faith in Genesis 15, 6, and then circumcised in Genesis 17, 23. So Genesis 17 says, so Abraham took his son Ishmael. Ishmael is now a teenager. And those born in his household or purchased, every male among the members of Abraham's household, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin on that very day, just as God had said to him. And so in Genesis 17, Abraham circumcises everyone in his household. Then in verse 24, it says, Abraham was 99 years old when the flesh of his foreskin was circumcised. Okay, how old was he when he was circumcised? 99. That is a brutal day for Abraham. 99 years old. He probably circumcised himself. And my first thought was, praise God for baptism in the new covenant. Amen, amen. Praise God for baptism. But then my second thought was, circumcision cannot be the basis of justification because Abraham was justified in Genesis 15 and circumcised decades later at the age of 99 in Genesis 17. And so if someone says, no, you have, to be ju- you have to be circumcised to be justified, Paul says, no, Abraham wasn't, and he's the one that we all look to. The second detail we need to notice is that Abraham is justified by faith in Genesis 15, 6, and then the law did not come for another 400 plus years in, in Exodus 20. So this is part of the biblical argument. So Abraham is justified by faith, Genesis 15, and then the law comes through Moses 400 plus years later, Exodus 20. What does that mean? It means that the law of God cannot be the foundation of our justification before God because there was no law at that time. There was no law given to Abraham that could have justified him. And so you can't, when someone says the way you're made right with God is by keeping the law, Abraham, or Paul says that's not how Abraham was made right. That's not how Abraham was justified. So it becomes clear, Abraham was not justified by works, he was not justified by circumcision, and he was not justified by the law. So what is the basis of his justification? Faith alone. Faith alone. One objection that Paul heard over and over and over again is that his gospel was a new thing. It was a new message that did not line up with the Old Testament. Uh, some people would say, you know, in the Old Testament, or let me, let me just ask you the question. In the Old Testament, think about, think about Moses. Think about Noah. Think about Esther. How, how are these people made right with God? Some people will say this. In the Old Testament, people were made right with God by obeying the law. 
So how are you made right with God? Keep the law. How are you made right with God? Offer your sacrifices through the sacrificial system. And then in the New Testament, you're made right with God. You're justified by faith in Christ alone. In the Old Testament, works. In the New Testament, faith. But Paul is arguing against that. This is the fourth lesson, that Abraham demonstrates that God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, have always been justified by faith alone. So how was Abraham justified? By faith alone. How was Noah? How was Noah justified, made right with God? By faith alone. How was Adam made right with God? By faith alone. How was Esther made right with God? By faith alone. It has always been, God's people have always been made right with God by faith alone. This is how God works. So Paul is just saying, what I'm preaching is what the Bible has been preaching from the beginning. This has always been God's plan, that salvation would be a gift to those who have faith in his promises. So what is faith then? What does it mean to exercise faith? Well, biblical faith has two, at least two components. The first component is that biblical faith has content. Content, and this is so important for us to understand. We have to understand this truth that biblical faith has content. In our culture, when people think about exercising faith, this is what this is what we often do. We think about clearing our mind and we think about searching for a feeling, a feeling of happiness or confidence in a big God, that God is, you know, he, he exists. And that's what it means to exercise faith. But that's not really the biblical picture. What it means to exercise faith in God is you go looking for sentences. You go looking for verses. And you grab a hold of God's word. You grab a hold of what God has said. Biblical faith has content, phrases, words. If you want to know someone who's rich in faith, if you prick them, they bleed the Bible. It comes out of them. They know the word of God. God's word is now is in their heart. It's on their lips. They know what God has said. And when you, the more and more you know what God says, the more and more you're going to grab a hold of it and trust him. Genesis 15 15, 5 says, he, being God, took Abraham outside and said, look at the sky and count the star stars, if you're able to count them. Now, remember, Abraham was discouraged. He was an old man. He was getting older and older, and he says, God, I have no children, and Eliezer, a servant in my home, is going to be my heir. What in the world can you give me if I don't have any descendants? God takes Abraham outside. He says, look up at the stars, and you can look up at the stars. You see all the stars. And this is what God says. Here's the promise. Your offspring will be that numerous. Your offspring from your body will be that numerous. And so the next day, I'm sure he felt something. Abraham felt something. But the next day, in the next week, when Abraham is trying to figure out his life, how does he exercise faith? This is what he does. He goes back to the sentence. Your offspring will be that numerous. God has said, your offspring will be that numerous. This is the example of faith that we see in the scriptures. This is why if you don't love the Bible, if you don't read the Bible, if God's word is not in you, you're just living according to the flesh. You're just living in sin. Even if you're a nice person, you can't exercise faith unless you're trusting in the very words of God. Genesis 15, 5, he took him outside and said, look, up at, look at the sky and count the stars if you're able to count them. Then he said, your offspring will be that numerous. Verse six, Abraham believed the Lord. He believed it. He grabbed a hold of it. He believed it. He put his trust in it. 
and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham took God at his word. What about you? What about you? Do you even know what God says? Do you know what he says? See, we, we are to be people who hold on to what God says. The New Testament, the rest of the New, New Testament indicates that Abraham had some understanding. That it's clear, the promises that God made to Abraham are clear, but the, the New Testament is clear that God indicated to Abraham, we don't know how much, but he indicated to Abraham that one of those descendants would be the savior of the world. You can read Galatians chapter three, or you can look at John chapter eight, verse 55. Uh, in John eight fifty-five, Jesus is talking to uh, Jewish people who were saying to Jesus, Jesus, we're not enslaved to sin. Jesus, we don't need your forgiveness. Jesus, we don't need to follow you because we're children of Abraham. And this is what Jesus says in John eight fifty-five: You do not know him, speaking of the father, but I do know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Okay, verse 56, this is wild. Okay, so here's Jesus, thousands of years after Abraham. He's speaking to the Jewish people, descendants of Abraham. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What does that mean? It means Jesus is saying to the descendants of Abraham, Abraham was looking to me. Abraham saw my day that the son of God would become a man. That the son of God was the descendant that would bless all the families of the earth. And so Abraham held on. He held on to what God had taught him. So what is faith? Well, the first component is that it has content, and that content is the very words of God. Secondly, biblical faith is personal. Biblical faith is personal. No one can exercise faith for you. No one can live the life of faith for you. Your spouse can't, your friends can't, your parents can't. No one can live the life of faith for you. It's, it is an act of your will. It happens in the inner person where you look away from yourself, you look away from the way you feel, and you put your hope in God's word. It's personal in the sense that you have to exercise faith. It's also personal that it's in a personal God. The biblical faith is in God. So to believe God is not to believe in a, in a higher power. It's not to believe uh, some, some sort of ethical code. It's not to believe in a bunch of ideas, but it's to believe in God. God is personal. God is relational. He exists, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the triune, eternal, relational God. And he has created us in his image to know him and to walk with him. And so when we exercise faith, we're actually coming to know our creator, the nature of real biblical faith is the creation, those created in the image of God, knowing our creator, knowing our God, the one who made us. And the channel by which we know God is by faith. There's no other way to know God. You can't see him. You can't hear him. How do you know him? By faith. Romans 4 verse 3 says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. That's what Christians do. We are to be radically centered on knowing God. Abraham believed God. This is why unbelief is sin. And this is a very important point for us to understand. That unbelief is sin. It's not only sin. It is the root of all of our sins. 
It is, the, it is the sin underneath all of our other sins. It is to not believe God. Because when you do not believe God, you're not just disagreeing with an ethical code. You're not just disagreeing with a bunch of ideas. When we do not believe the word of God, we make God out to be a liar. But what we're saying in our unbelief is, God, you're not trustworthy. You're not reliable. I can't put my confidence in you. And what I should put my confidence in is myself. It's my feelings. That's what these guys say or these people say. We're saying there's something that is more trustworthy. But the spirit of faith is the spirit that says, let God be true and everyone else a liar. Let God be true and everyone else a liar. What God says is true and right. First Peter 1.8 says, though you have not seen him, that's us. This is the first century. The apostle Peter writing to a group of people who had not seen Christ. I love this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. This is the Christian life. It's not just a moral standard. Let's just be good. That's, that's not what it is. Let's just try hard. That's not the nature of it. It's that we know God. We know God. You know, imagine trying to have a relationship with a person. Just think about that for a moment. We're trying to have, you're, you're trying to get to know a person, but your starting point is that that person you're trying to get to know is a liar and everything they say shouldn't be taken seriously. I mean, just, I'm going to come into a relationship. And my starting point is you don't tell the truth. What you're saying is not that relevant. And I need to take everything you say with a grain, a big grain of salt. Now, how's that relationship going to go? Not very well. It's not going to go well at all. Now, flip it. Now, imagine coming into a relationship where you say, what you say is more important than what the rest of the world has to say combined. What you say is trustworthy. Imagine the difference, the starting point. And see, as Christians, we are to come before God saying, God, what you say is more important than what the rest of the world has to say combined. It's more important than what I think. It's more important than how I feel. It's more important than what the rest of the world says. What you say is right. Let God be true and every man a liar. And so this is, this is the nature of biblical faith. It has content and it's personal that we are to be men and women who know and love and trust God by trusting his word. That's faith. Question number two, what is justification? What is justification? What does it mean to be justified? Romans 4, 4 says, now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. To the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. Verse 4 shows us that justification is not something God owes you. If you have a time card at work, you put in 40 hours, you submit your time card, you, you expect to get paid. Like you're going to get paid. And, it, and when you get paid, you submit your time card. When you get paid, you don't think to yourself, my boss is so generous. Holy cow. He paid me this week. She paid me this week. You don't think that. You think I better get paid or we're going to have big problems. I'm going to call Uncle Vinny and it's going to get messy or whatever it is. I'm going to get paid. That's, I'm going to sue you, whatever it is. I'm going to get my money. Why? Because that company owes you. It would be wrong of them to not pay you. And so many people think they would we would never articulate it this way. But deep down in our souls, we think, when I die and stand before God, I'm going to turn in my time card. 
I'm going to submit my time card. And I'm going to say, God, look at how often I went to church. Look how much time I spent at church. And look at how much money I gave. And look at how many Chris Tomlin concerts I went to. Or whatever it is that we're trusting in to show ourselves better and more righteous. And the subtle assumption is that on the day of judgment, somehow God will owe you salvation because of how you lived. But this is not how justification works. Romans 4, 5 says this is how it works. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Verse 5 teaches us that justification is a gift. It is a gift that you could never earn. I can never earn justification before a holy God. The principle of works is all about earning. It's all about achieving. It's all about deserving the favor of God. It's all about putting God into our debt as if God owes us eternal life, as if God owes us a relationship. But the principle of grace is all about believing. It's all about trusting. It's all about receiving from God that which we can never earn. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Okay, so what is justification? This is a simple way to remember it. It's, there's more to it than this, but this is, this is the simplest way I can remember what justification is. Okay, so if I give you this sign, tell me, what's this sign mean? Peace. It means peace. We know it, we understand it to mean peace. And I would say there are two prongs or two fingers of justification. That sounds weird to say two fingers of justification, but you get what I'm saying. There are two prongs to justification. The first is the forgiveness of sins. What is justification? To be justified is to be forgiven. To be justified is to be forgiven. Romans 4, 6 says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from the law. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now this is, man, we should think about this for a long time. Verse 8. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. To be forgiven means that all of your sins are gone and that God, the righteous judge of the universe, will never charge you with sin. You will never be condemned for your sin. Why? Because Christ was condemned on our behalf. If we have a record before God, our record is, has been filled up with our own sins, our own lies, our sexual immorality, our pride, our selfishness. The list goes on and on. We have ruined our own record through our sin. And that record of sin is what gives God the legal basis to condemn us. But what the gospel teaches is that that record of sin was taken from us and it was put on Christ. And at the cross, the righteousness of God was poured out on Christ in our place so that our sins... By his wounds, we have been healed. Through his blood, we have been forgiven. To be a Christian, to be justified, is to be forgiven. I, I don't know about you, but there are often times where, for whatever reason, uh, in my mind, I, there's stuff kind of going on all the time. I'm sure that's the way you are as well. There's stuff going on all the time. And then every once in a while, for whatever reason, there's like a thought from the past that will come rushing into my mind and it's like, it's like right on the front of my mind. And what it is often, it's something that I've said. 
I lied in that situation. I, I said something very unkind and th about that person, to that person, behind their back. Or there'll be sexual sin from the past. Like it, it comes right into, right into the forefront of my mind. Or, I mean, there's a many, many ways that I've sinned. And those sins, they go, boom, right into my mind. Now, what do you do then? What do you do with that? One way, if you want to ruin your life, is you minimize it. Say it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. Who cares? Didn't hurt anybody. You minimize it. Or some people, they're very sensitive, and they feel like, I got to confess it. And they, I got to go tell other people about this thing that happened seven years ago. Something I did seven years ago. Now, it's appropriate. Obviously, there are times, a lot of times, where it's appropriate to confess our sins. I'm not diminishing that. But the mentality is that in the confession of our sins, somehow the guilt of our sin is taken away. So what do you do? What do Christians do when we get plagued by our past? The sin comes into focus. What do you do? You go right back to the cross. You take that, cross, or you take that sin and you go right to the cross. You look right at Christ and you say, what I did was horrible. What I did made me worthy of hell. But Christ went to the cross to pay for my sin. That Christ was punished in my stead. This is why David, this Psalm in Romans 4, 7 and 8, Paul is quoting Psalm 32. Right after David had committed adultery and committed murder. And David says, how blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. The sins that stain us, that make us guilty, God, because of the cross, will never charge us with those sins. We will never be punished because of those sins. Now, there are natural consequences in this life, and we can miss out on God's blessing. Don't get me wrong, but we will never, on judgment day, we will never be condemned because of what we've done. Now, is that only our past sins? No, it's all of our sins, future sins. It's all paid for. It's all gone. So to be a Christian, to be justified, is to be forgiven. The second prong is to be righteous. It's to have the riches of Christ's righteousness. It's to be forgiven and to be righteous. This is what God does in justification. Romans 4.3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. It doesn't say that Abraham believed God and then somehow Abraham earned his righteousness. No, no. Abraham believed God and it was credited. What does credited mean? It means that God, think about this, God put his righteousness into Abraham's account. That God gave Abraham his own righteousness. To be a Christian is to be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. And because of that, we have access to God. Because of that, we are children of God. Because of that, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. We can know God. Because of that, we are fit for heaven. Why are you fit for heaven? You're fit for heaven because you're, you're forgiven and you're clothed in the very righteousness of God. And you say, but I'm not righteous. Exactly. Remember the truth? What is God like? He justifies the ungodly who have faith in Christ. Forgiven, righteous, Romans 5. Therefore, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace. We have peace with God. To be justified is to be forgiven and righteous so that we are at peace with God forever, forever. From this moment on, if you're a Christian, from the moment you were justified through all of eternity, peace with God. No war. Peace. Not an enemy. A son. A friend. A child. It's incredible. It's incredible. Now, who does he give? To whom does God give the gift of justification? Well, recently I got an email saying, Congratulations, you have been chosen. Elon Musk is giving out 10 new Tesla trucks to Iowans to test them out, and you have been selected. All you have to do is just a small thing. You just need to pay the taxes, $7,500 worth of taxes. And so I got that email, and I said, this is such good news. I, I always thought something good like this would happen to me. And so I quickly paid the $7,500 immediately, and I'm just waiting for my truck to get here on December 25th. <laughs> that's, that's when it's coming. Now, if I did that, you'd say, oh, don't you know it's too good to be true? And we get spammed like that all the time. And do you know why you disregard it? You disregard those because you know, well, there's a lot of reasons. One of them, I disregarded the email because I knew I wasn't dealing with Elon Musk, someone else. But if Elon, okay, Elon comes onto stage and he looks at all of you and he says, I have 10 Tesla trucks and I'm gonna give them away today. Does anyone want one? How many of you are raising your hand? I'm raising both of my hands, like give me two of them. I want two of them. Give them both to me. I'll take them. And see, what would happen in that situation is, is that since you're dealing with Elon himself and you know he's able to deliver on his promise, you raise your hand. You raise your, give that to me. Give me two of them. So how do you view God when he makes you a promise like this? See, if we feel that way about Elon Musk, how much more should we feel that way about God? You know, God is here with us this morning. And he's speaking through his word. And he makes the most incredible promise you could ever imagine. To guilty sinners. Enemies of God. Condemned. Under the wrath of God. Fit for hell. If you would believe in Christ, he would make you righteous. I don't have to do anything. See, some people say this, they say, okay, okay, I need to start reading the Bible, I need to read the Bible more, I need to go to church more, I need to pray more, I need to get rid of some bad habits, and then once I do all that, then I'll be ready. It's like you still don't understand what is being taught. Even if you had a thousand years and you tried as hard as you could, you could never make yourself right with God. So to become a Christian, look at verse five again, but to the one who does not work, to become a Christian, you have to stop working. You have to say, I can never make myself right with God. There's nothing I could ever do to earn the favor of God, to make myself righteous. So you stop working. You look away from yourself and you look to Christ alone. You say, his death, his life, his death, his resurrection is my justification. His death on the cross is where my sins were dealt with. His righteous life is mine. I'm righteous in him. I'm forgiven in him. And you stop trying. You stop trying to earn it. And you receive what God is offering us 
by faith. That's the Christian life. This is the Christian life. And so if you're here this morning, I just want to ask you, are you a Christian? If you're not a Christian, turn to Christ today. Don't say, I need to clean myself up. I got to make my life better. I got to read more and pray more and get, get my life together. Then I'll be ready to, to receive God's act or his gracious forgiveness. That, that's not what it is. You just say, just as I am. I have nothing to offer God. I have no righteousness of my own, and I need his grace. And to that person, God will save. God will save. And if you are a Christian, uh, my hope is that this is encouraging for you. To think about God, how God will never, he, in judgment, he will never condemn us. That we stand clothed in the very righteousness of God. It should make us worship. This is, the, this is the foundation on which the entire Christian life is built. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. So brothers and sisters, let's marvel at the truth that God justifies the ungodly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for the marvelous truth that the God of the Bible loves us so much.